That's what's up. That's what's up. The, the mothers of the church, the, the students in the church, everybody in between. Anybody else? They're like, no, that's enough, Pastor G. Amen. Amen. Well, let me tell you what's going to happen. Um, beginning next week for like the next four Sundays, we're going to have a little short series um, uh, called Worshiping in the Beauty of Holiness. Um, and so that'll go on for a month. If you've not been memorizing the scripture, it's a perfect time to catch up, right? To spend these next three, four weeks just sort of going back to verse one or wherever you left off um, and hiding God's word in your heart, right? Let's treasure God's word in this way. And, and watch how it just shapes our thoughts, shapes our feelings, even changes our conversation and speech, right? Uh, so let me encourage us uh, to memorize God's word, to hide it in our hearts in that way. Let me offer a word of prayer, and we'll get the first week. Father, we thank you for your holy word. It's life to us. We thank you that by your word, Lord, you have saved us, that you sanctify us, and every promise of your word is yes and amen in Jesus Christ. We thank you for him, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us, who gave himself for our redemption when he died on the cross and was raised from the grave three days later. We thank you for his heavenly session, that he rules right now at your right hand. And we are setting our hopes more and more fully on his coming and on the grace to be brought to us at the day of his revelation. We pray, O oh Lord, that you make us fiends for your word, that we would hunger and thirst after it, that we would, Lord, drink from it as from pure water, that we would eat it, O oh Lord, and hide it inside of ourselves, be transformed by it, indeed be conformed to it. But we love you for speaking to us, for speaking to us by your word. So we pray, Holy Spirit, illumine our minds, speak to us now, give us clarity and understanding in the preaching and the hearing, in the receiving and believing of your holy word. We pray this in Jesus' name. One of the big values in our culture today is the value of being authentic. Authentic. To see that value at work, all we have to do is think about the use of pronouns in our culture. Today, people choose pronouns that reflect their sense of identity. A man who identifies as a woman wishes to be called she. A woman who identifies as a man wishes to be called he. Someone who rejects male and female and other binaries may wish to be called it or they. Despite their anatomy. What are we to make of this? Well, we could have a long conversation about pronouns and whether Christians should respect the pronouns that people choose for themselves. But as it turns out, Christians have different views on that, and there's probably not much good in repeating those arguments. A more interesting thing to consider, I think, is what the culture might be getting right in all of this. There's a logic to it that we ought to recognize. Authenticity says that no matter what one, um, no matter what one must be true to himself, herself, or itself, that no matter what, one must express who they think they genuinely are, even if it breaks the rules of society and even the rules of biology. What matters, according to that view of authenticity, is true identity and the expression of it. Now, there's a lot of good in that way of thinking. After all, none of us respect fake people, do we? None of us respect hypocrites. All of us on some level value authenticity. That's why we walk around talking about keeping it a buck, keeping it a hundred, keeping it real. 
But what the Christian understands and other people of sound judgment understand is that there is such a thing as mistaken identity. When we live mistaken or false identities, authenticity is impossible. This is why conversations about pronouns strike us as inauthentic, however sincere people might be. Well, our text this morning is about authenticity. But let's use a different word so that it might distinguish a, a biblical view from how the world talks about this. Let's use the word integrity. Our text teaches us that there's a formula for integrity. I was never really good at math, so if this, one of you math guys, if this don't make sense, let me know. But that formula goes something like this. True identity plus true activity equals personal integrity. When I correctly understand who I am and I then live in a manner consistent with that understanding, then I have personal integrity. That formula holds true for relationships, too. So it's like true identity plus activity for one person, add it together with that same formula for another person equals a kind of relational integrity. When I am behaving consistent with my identity and you are behaving consistent with your identity, we can have then in this relationship integrity. Happens on a community level, too, where N equals however many number of people. If we are all behaving consistent with our identity, then our community, too, has integrity. Now, what does all of this have to do with holiness? We're in 1 Peter. We've titled this series, Holiness in a Hostile World. And finally, Peter, in this text, comes down explicitly to conversation about holiness. And if you're taking notes this morning, I would suggest that the main point of this text might be put something like this. Our holiness grows out of our identity. Our holiness grows out of our identity. And as we think about this text, 1 Peter 1, verses 14 to 16, I want us to sort of meditate on two points here. Number one, you are God's child if you're a Christian. That's the doctrine. And then number two, live like it. That's the duty. You and I, if we are Christians, are God's children. And given that, there's a way we ought to live consistent with that identity. So look with me in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 to 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, this is a short but packed sentence here. It's really a parallel statement. The two halves say the same things in slightly different directions. They are two sides of the same coin. So verse 14 gives us the negative statement. And verse 15 puts it positively. And they both are teaching us something about our identity and something about the life, the behavior, the activity that's consistent with that identity so that we might be people with integrity. We might be God's holy people. So think about this first point. You are God's child. Verse 14 begins with that, with the Christian's identity. Peter calls these Christians obedient children. That is who the Christian is, an obedient child. And verse 15 starts with, as he who called you. That's a reference to God the Father. We know that because verse 15 says he is holy. And verse 17 says, we call on him as father. God called us to himself in salvation in verse 15. And now as his children, we call on him as our father. Verse 17. Beloved, this is wonderful. This is wonderful. We are God's children, and God is our Father. The Apostle John marveled at this reality when he wrote in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has lavished on us, has given to us, 
that we should notice that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Pay careful attention to this. It's not just that we are called children of God. That's where John starts. But it's almost like he pauses like, hey, you know what? That ain't like a nickname. That's who we are. And so we are. It's a fact. It's a reality. It's an actuality. We are, if we are Christians, God's children. Now, that identity is hidden to the world. Notice what he says there at the end of 1 John 3, verse 1. The world does not know God, so they do not know us. We're all like superheroes with secret identities. But this very real identity should not be secret to us. We need to know this about ourselves. Nothing could be more marvelous than to understand that we are actually God's children. His obedient children, Peter says. Now, that kind of description of the Christian might raise some questions. I mean, we, we sit here, don't we, knowing perfectly well that we're not always obedient. We're not always responding to God as we ought. I mean, so how can the Bible say this about us? If we're talking about authenticity, if we're talking about integrity, how can the Bible say this about us when we all know that we fall short of the glory of God? How, how can we embrace this identity as obedient children without feeling like frauds? How can we embrace this with integrity? Well, let's think it through. Let's ask a series of questions. The first one is this. When does a person become a child of God? Verse 3 tells us the answer. Remember what he says there in verse 3? According to his great mercy, God has caused us to be born again. At the moment of our new birth, we become adopted children of God. At the very moment that we put our faith in Jesus, we, we get a new parent, a heavenly father. And so remember the words of the call to worship, which Pastor Tim read earlier, John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. John puts it this way in his gospel. But to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. God gives every single person who receives Jesus, which is the same as believes in Jesus, the new birth, and the right to be children of God. You became God's child at that moment. No one can take that away. I wonder if there's anyone here this morning who wishes to be a child of God. Not in some cliche way, because sometimes the world says we're, we're all God's children. No, when the Bible here is talking about a specific, unique way in which we become born-again children of God. I wonder if there's someone here who would long to be God's child. The good news is you can be. You see what John says? If we would receive Jesus as Lord and Savior and believe on him as the one who died for our sins and was raised again on the third day and who is living right now at the right hand of the Father praying for us and who will come again and gather us as his people. If we would put our hope in Jesus, we would be God's children. The text says in verse 12, all who receive him. That's an invitation to you this morning. If you're not yet a Christian, would you be one of the all who would be God's child? The moment you trust in Jesus, that's who you become, God's child. Now, the second question we might ask ourselves is this. Well, okay, how do we know then? How do we know internally that we are God's children? Well, the short answer is this. God is wonderful. God tells us so. The very reason that Jesus came was to make us the adopted children of God. That was part of our Lord's mission. And one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit in the Christian's life is to testify to us that we are God's children. Let's see this in two texts. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7. Paul writes there to the Christians in Galatia these words. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, 
born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Why? So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, there's your identity, right? Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The spirit of Christ was in the Old Testament prophets telling them about the sufferings and the glories of Christ to come in 1 Peter 1.10. But the spirit of Christ now is in us telling us we are truly, really God's children, according to Galatians 4, 6. That's amazing. One more text, Romans 8, 14 to 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, there it is again, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. <laughs> God himself came into your heart to tell you that you are his child. That cry that you feel, that longing that you have, that sense that you are drawn toward God, upward toward him, in, in hope and in faith and in belief that you belong to him, you didn't produce that in you, God did. It is an evidence of the Spirit's work in your life. And it's a marvelous thing, right? Because sometimes we don't want to act like we're God's children. And there's this testimony in us that keeps reminding us, we don't do that, what you're doing? We want to go our own way. Like, no, 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 that's the wrong way. God's Spirit comes into your heart when you become His. And He cries out loud, Abba word that might be translated Papa. God has become our Papa, our Father, our Daddy. The Father sent the Son to redeem us. The Son redeemed us so we too would be sons of God and heirs to his kingdom. The Father and the Son sent the Holy Spirit to testify our spirits that God really is our Father, our Abba. There's the voice of God inside of us laying claim to us, telling us to draw near because he's our dad. Y'all know I'm married to a very wonderful woman. Amen. Amen. And an even more extraordinary mother. And one of the things I will always be grateful to her about was the way she taught our kids to greet me when I came home from work. I'd come to the door and she would say, Daddy's home with excitement. And they learned this infectious excitement. And I would open the door and they would just spring into my arms. Daddy, 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 welcome home. And I couldn't put my things down before they were dragging me into the house and wanting to play a tea party or some other thing I was uh, shamefully too tired to do. But that way in which their hearts leapt, daddy is here is the way the Christian's heart should leap into the arms of God as our Father. That's how we know this internally. Well, how do we show it externally? How do we show that we are the children of God? Well, one mark of a born-again child of God is what Peter gives us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, is obedience. Notice how Peter assumes this of these elect exiles. He calls them obedient children. These are likely Christians that Peter has never met. He's been celebrating their salvation and calling them to rejoice in their salvation from verse 3 all the way down to verse 13. And so sure of their salvation and so happy of their salvation that he's also confident that they are God's obedient children. 
And that's what you are, Christian. You are obedient to God, imperfectly, yes, but truly also. And you desire obedience because you have been born again. In your new birth, you were given a new heart. On that heart is written the law of God. And with that new heart, you are given the gift of the Holy Spirit who sanctifies you. And this was all prophesied centuries earlier. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27. Notice this promise of the new covenant which we have entered into. God says there, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Do you see? What wonderful news this is? A new heart, a new spirit, a new walk. They're linked together like a steel chain. The one who produces or causes our obedience is God himself. <laughs> when it comes to obedience in the new covenant, what God commands, he also provides. Right? Paul puts it this way, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. You might think of it as the New Testament version of Ezekiel 36 in some ways. He says there, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Then he gives the reason, verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I love this. I love this. This is, this is help for the struggler. All y'all who got together take a nap right now. I just want to talk to the strugglers. This is help for the strugglers, the one whose patience is short because the kids are getting on their nerves and they're tempted to forget that they are children of God, the one who goes to work every day a little bit less hopeful each day, more despondent each day because they don't like their work, they don't like their coworkers, they don't like what they do or why they do it. The ones who are in perpetual conflict with somebody that they really love, but they can't seem to get along with. This is for the struggler who hears the call of God to obey and feel the struggle. Feel the immense difficulty. Who are tempted to think that they've got to do it in their own strength. This verse comes to us as great news because what it says is this. What we are working out in verse 12, God is working in in verse 13. What we've been called to work out, God is working inside of us. What God commands, God also produces. That, that obedience becomes external proof that we are God's children, but the one who's proven it is God. I'm preaching better than y'all praising right now. One more question. But if God's children are obedient, how am I to think about my disobedience? How am I to think about my sin? Because we do sin and come up short, don't we? Our obedience is not perfect yet. Not, not in ourselves. What do, what do we do with that? Think of your disobedience as an occasion for a very specific form of obedience called confession. The way we obey God when we have been disobeying God is to confess that we have been disobeying. And by that confession, we experience again the cleansing of God. 1 John chapter 1 verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the promise of God. 
is tied together with his faithful and just character. Did you know that? That God's forgiveness of our sins is a demonstration of his faithfulness and his justice? Because Christ has already atoned for our sins? Confession is what obedience looks like when we mess up. Our sin can only make us inauthentic if we fail to confess it as sin. See, confession is obedience's revenge against disobedience. When we confess, then God proves just how faithful and just he is. Just how deep and wide his mercy and forgiveness are. Cleanses us of all unrighteousness. Because, in fact, we have a better righteousness than our own obedience, don't we? 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, see, the apostles ain't tripping. They know. Now, I'm telling you not to sin. Try to give you some encouragements, but <laughs> we all dust. If anyone does sin... Here's the good news. We have an advocate. We have a lawyer with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What is John saying there? Listen, beloved, we ought to live a life that conforms to our identity as God's children. But here's the reality. We stumble and fall as fallen creatures. Here's the good news. When we stumble and fall, look up to the right hand of the Father. There's somebody sitting there pleading for you. Somebody by the Father's side with you in mind. He is Jesus Christ, the righteous. And it is his righteousness that has become your righteousness through faith in his name. Beloved, if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is what we need you to understand. This is what God wants you to understand. You, you may be a very good person doing all the good you know how to do. You treat people right. You're kind to kittens and puppies. You, you do all the things. But the Bible is just really clear that that's good, but not sufficient. We fall short of perfection. Surely you will admit that about yourself, won't you? I, I don't admit it about me. Surely you will admit that you fall short of perfection. Well, then your chances of a perfect righteousness are already ruined. And if God requires of you a perfect righteousness, well then if you're just depending on how good you are, you are never going to make it into God's kingdom. You need another righteousness. One that is unblemished, one is not tainted, one that is perfect. And that righteousness is provided to you and me through Jesus Christ, who obeyed the Father perfectly and died for our sins and rose for our justification. That's the righteousness you need to wrap your righteousness under. That's the righteousness you need to depend upon, even if you have no righteousness of you. For it will be enough apart from anything that you do. Oh, beloved, put your hope in Jesus this morning. Trust him as your savior and your righteousness. Become a child of God by confessing your sins and putting your faith in Jesus. And Christian, it's just vital that we know who we are. That we know we are God's children. That we wear that identity. That we massage it deep into our souls. That we preach it to ourselves. I want to encourage you to read your Bible this week and just sort of notice, particularly in the New Testament, the New Testament letters, I, and we've given you some already this morning, but just notice how this idea of sonship and adoption just runs through the Bible. How it's just sort of there speaking all the time, but how often we just kind of pass over it. Don't pass it. Put both hands on it. Hold it tight and bring it in. You are God's child. You are. Believe it. Let it change your identity. 
everything we are grows out of who we are. So if we are God's children, point number two, we should live like it. We should live like it. We live like God's children, according to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 to 16, or 13, or 14 to 16. 1 Peter chapter 1, 14 to 16, we live like God's children by doing two things. Number one, we refuse our old sins. We refuse our old sins. Notice how Peter puts it in verse 14. He says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Passions are desires and wants. It's the root of our sin problems. See, often we fight our sins at the level of behavior, but the real battle is at the level of desire, the level of passions, right? And some passions belong to our old lives, to that life before we were Christians. That's what Peter means by your former ignorance. Before we knew Jesus, we didn't know nothing. We were controlled by ignorance. We were ignorant of God. We were ignorant of Jesus. We were ignorant of the gospel. We were ignorant of sin's destruction. But we thought ourselves wise. Now that we know Jesus, we know things prophets and angels desire to look into. Now that we know Jesus, we also know better. We, we are informed, not ignorant. We know we are God's sons and daughters, so we cannot any longer be conformed to those desires, those old desires. The word conformed there puts together two ideas, con, meaning with or alongside, and formed, meaning to be shaped or molded. If something conforms, then it is, it is squeezed into the mold of something else. The same word that Paul uses in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, when he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So as Christian people, then, we cannot be squeezed or shaped into the mold of either the world or of our old desires and passions. We cannot go on under the controlling influence of our fallen nature of sin. We have to break the old mold so that we might live in a new mold. 1 John chapter 3, John there helps us to understand this. Verses 4 to 10, I've highlighted verses 6 and uh, 8, etc. But let me read from 4 to 10. 1 John chapter 3, John writes there, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared, referring to Jesus, he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him, there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, there it is again. Children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he, Jesus, is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. There it is again. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Could it be clearer? And John here is saying to us very clearly that there are, there are two possibilities that cannot be reconciled. Right? There's a possibility that we are we are Jesus' people, that we are children of God. And if that's the case, we are committed to the practice of righteousness. And there's a possibility that, that someone is carrying on in sin, practicing sin, habitually given to it, not fighting it, not refusing it, in, in which case they are not the children of God, but the text says here, of the devil. That you can't have it mixed. I'm God's child, and I practice sin. 
He said, no, 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 don't work like that. Don't work like that. And, and it, don't, it don't work the other way. I, I'm of the devil, but I'm righteous. No. No. And he says, don't let anybody deceive you, right? So this is a matter of perceiving reality clearly and accepting the truth for what it is. Don't be persuaded. Don't be taken in. Don't be deceived. There is chalk and cheese, oil and water. These are things that do not mix. And so the one who belongs to Christ, who is God's child, has to put to death the old sin nature with his practices and has to strike a blow at its root, at its desires, at its passions. This is what Peter is saying. Our holiness grows out of our identity. And since we are God's children, we cannot allow ourselves to be squeezed into the mold or the shape of those former ignorant desires. Or as John puts it, to practice sin. That's on the negative side of the coin. Here's the positive side of the coin, verses 15 and 16. Our activity is not limited to the things we must stop. Right? There are things we must also start. Verse 14 gives us the negative view, what we're not allowed to do. Verses 15 and 16 give us the same teaching now, but from the positive viewpoint. Now we learn what we are to do. Um, verse 14 had us looking at ourselves as God's children. Now with the word but, verse 15 turns our eyes away from ourselves to look at God himself. What is our father like? In a word, holy. Holy and all he does. Verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. You see? Once again, first comes identity, then comes activity. God our Father is holy, so we must be holy like him. One definition of holy is to be exclusively set apart for God. We might call that a kind of positional sanctification, a positional holiness. That's not what Peter has in mind. It's essential. It's not what Peter has in mind. Peter explains by saying, be holy, notice, in all your conduct. So Peter now means our practical holiness our progressive sanctification. In fact, when we put verses 14 and 15 together, we get another mathematical formula for progressive sanctification. It's this, breaking old patterns of sin plus learning new patterns of holy conduct equals being holy, equals growing in sanctification. Paul used an analogy to explain this, this idea of growing holy in our conduct or progressive sanctification. Paul compares it to getting dressed. We're told to take off the old man and to put on the new man. So he writes in Colossians 3, 9 and 10, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You see, you're taking off the old man, you're putting on the new man in Christ. If a person has learned Christ, they have been taught, according to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 to 24, they've been taught to, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through what? Deceitful desires. Our desires trick us. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, verse 24, and to put on, then, the new self, created after the likeness of God, how? in true righteousness and holiness. That's what's happening with us Christians. We, we are steadily taking off the, the day's old dirty clothes and putting on new clothes. We are being renewed in the image of God. We were made in God's image. Then we marred that image in sin. Now we're being renewed in that image, particularly as it relates to true righteousness and holiness. And so the questions for us become something like this. Are there old passions from my life before Christ that are squeezing me into their mold? 
take inventory of your passions, your desires. Are they what the Bible calls the deceitful kind? Or are they godly, not just godly? What desires are we conforming to? Second question might be something like this. Well, in thinking about Ephesians 4.23 in particular and, and Romans 12 too, well, in what way does our mind need to be renewed? In what way do we need to better understand our identity so that we are enabled to put off the old and put on the new? Right? It's not like that when we become Christians, kind of ipso facto, all of a sudden, our minds are just like perfectly changed. There's still a lot of changing that has to happen in the soul. A lot of renewal. Well, in what ways do we need this renewing influence from God's Spirit and His Word? And number three, is there a holy conduct, some expression of holiness, some expression of of, of our status as God's children, is there some activity, some conduct that we want to grow in? Maybe it's prayer or evangelism. Maybe it's confession of sins and mortification of sins. There's some way we want to grow as God's children. But how does faith help us in that? Right? But this growth, again, isn't a matter of us white-knuckling it's God who is at work in us, causing us to live this way. So then we need faith in this God that he will finish what he began, just as he promised. Well, we should end with a comment on verse 16. Notice that Peter grounds the call to be holy. He bases that in the scripture. He quotes Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44. says, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. I think this is important to understand. We want to obey God, yes. But the surest way to obey God is to obey his word. Peter doesn't call us to be holy simply because he thinks it's a good idea. The call to be holy here is not based on human reason and human deduction. It's based on God's objective, infallible word. Now, I felt like I wanted to sort of mention this pastorally because I think sometimes well-meaning Christians base their call to obedience on their analogies and their thoughts instead of God's word. See, oftentimes Christians can call for things that sound good, but are not really God's requirements for us. If, if you spend time in Colossians, Colossians 2, around verse 20, down to about verse 24 or so, Paul is dealing with the same kind of thing. That there are Christians who are arguing for asceticism, the sort of severe treatment of the body. And he says there that these things have an appearance of wisdom, but he says they're actually futile for subduing the flesh. They don't work. They, they appear like good things to conclude and do. But they're not actually what God requires of us. And they have no power. And we can see examples of this all the time. So let me, let me give you an example. Not to pick on anybody. Perhaps you've said this. I've said this before. I, didn't, I, didn't, I was wrong. You've heard people say something like this. The body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So you shouldn't eat certain foods. Okay, that sounds right. What does the, the, the Bible say? Acts chapter 10, verses 13 to 16 says that we should not call foods unclean that God has made clean. That was a whole bunch of barbecue in that sheet that Peter saw. Right? The other day I was listening to Christian radio and a preacher on the radio said that the church is the bride of Christ. So, so far, so good. Then he said, because of that, he was doing a whole sermon on, on like prophecy in the end time. He said, because of that, God will not let the church go through the suffering of tribulation. And this, is how, this is what he said. He said, that would be divine spouse abuse. That's how I was too. I looked at Chris, turn that off, turn that off. 
But Jesus says very clearly in Matthew 24, verse 9, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Matthew 24 is a whole chapter where Jesus is talking about the end things. You jump down to chapter um, verse 24, Matthew 24, he says it there again, that, 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 that the reason the tribulation will be cut short is for the sake of the elect. He said, if, if it wasn't for that, the elect wouldn't even survive, which leads me to believe that the elect are in the tribulation, are suffering in that way. Or Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So contrary to what this preacher says, we're the bride of Christ, therefore God will not allow us to suffer uh, tribulation and affliction because that would be spousal abuse. Jesus actually says, if you follow me, be ready to die. That suffering is a natural, normal part of the Christian life because the world hates our Savior and it hates us too. So, those are illustrations of how people will take one truth, right, and by analogy and human reasoning, extend it to some calls for certain kinds of obedience or belief that actually don't square with the Bible. That's not what Peter is doing here. Peter is saying, be holy, because that's what the text says, right? And when you think about your own holiness and your growth in holiness and what, call, what God calls you to do, put your finger on the book, chapter, and verse. See what the text requires. Because in this is liberty. In this is freedom. Right? Instead of the kind of slavery that comes when we try to bind each other to what our preferences are. What I prefer may have nothing to do with God's agenda for you and vice versa. So we want the freedom that the book gives. But we should end here. When it comes to being authentic, you can't do much better than children's books, like The Velveteen Rabbit. As a passage in The Velveteen Rabbit that includes, I think, some excellent dialogue. Hey, how many of you read The Velveteen Rabbit? Already? What am I talking about? Yeah. Classic. This is the dialogue that I want to end with. It says, real isn't how you are made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt, asked the rabbit? Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. When you are real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up, he asked, or bit by bit? It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't happen often to people who break easily or have sharp edges or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off and your eyes drop out and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all because once you are real, you can't be ugly except the people who don't understand. That's so good. That's so good. Because just like in the Velveteen Rabbit, we have a God who really, really, really loves us. And loves us so much, he doesn't play with us as if we are throwaway things, but he sticks with us. And in his sticking with us, we become more and more real. We become more and more like him, which is what we were made for. And in this journey of holiness, well, some limbs fall off. And some eyes have to be plucked out. And we lose some hair. But we don't care. Because being real, being authentic the way God designed, is not ugly. It's beautiful except for people who don't understand. Our holiness grows out of our identity. Our resistance to sin is rooted in our identity as children of God. It doesn't happen all at once. It's a lot of wear and tear. But first comes identity. 
then comes behavior. And in the end, we become who we really are. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love us. Oh, how you love us. Forgive us our dull minds that, that fail to rejoice in awe that the God of the universe loves us and has adopted us and has made us his children. Awaken in us a, a gladness to be yours. Awaken in us a, a gladness to be your children. Stir up in us a, a longing to be like you, to be holy as you are holy, to take off the old desires from that former life of ignorance and to, to be clothed with new desires, holy desires, to be clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Oh, Lord, stir us up to long for that, to, to worship you in the beauty of holiness. May we hear the call to be holy and may we be excited. May we be glad to be invited into your character and your likeness. Indeed, may we hear the call to be holy. And may we marvel that you are at work in us to cause us to obey you. As we are working out our salvation, you are working in us to will and to do your good pleasure. Lord, we're so glad we're not alone in this quest for holiness. Thank you for setting us apart. And thank you for, by degrees, making us more and more like yourself. Have your way with us, O oh Lord, we pray. Have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.